Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. And I am so excited to have Renee Hess on the line, the founder of the Black Girl Hockey Club. And a person of, you know, this is, we're going to run this about a week after we're recording, but there was just a New York Times story that came out that was incredible. Renee's influence at the NHL and what I just like to assume is a direct line to Kim Davis and Gary Bettman <laughs> is is really become such an important connection um, right now. Renee, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I am so oh, excited to have this conversation. Me. me too. All right, there's gosh, there's so much to get at here, and here's where I want to start this because um, you have kicked off a get uncomfortable campaign pledge. Um, now, you know, I, I don't know how pledges work, but you know, encouraging people to get uncomfortable it may be a tough sell. But I understand exactly the importance and why you're doing it, and I wanted to start here and, and maybe get your thoughts on on the, the concept, where it came from, and what you're hoping to accomplish here. So as you know, the, the playoffs got started, my team, we were thinking about ways that we could kind of engage not just you know, our, the black women in our group and um, those that are already a part of the Black Girl Hockey Club family, but also engage with our allies and um, other BIPOC communities at large. And so as we were working towards um, figuring out what that might look like, we just kept thinking about this idea that, you know, anti-racism work is not comfortable work, not for me, not for you. These are difficult conversations, but they're so incredibly necessary to have. And we wanted to um, have an impact right out of the gate. And this idea of getting uncomfortable, of moving into spaces in which you know perhaps we have not been before but are necessary it, it's such an important idea and so we decided to just go with that um, that concept of getting uncomfortable and talking about things perhaps that we haven't talked about before but are definitely necessary especially in the times that we're in right now in sports and just in the world in general all right so let's start there when you say talk about things that maybe we don't normally talk about is that are you talking with your allies when you say we or are you talking about you know the your group or can uh, let's jump into that a little bit you know i'm going to start with allies first because you know allies are such an important part of the discussion uh you, you know Racism was not invented by black people. This is, you know, racism was not invented by um, BIPOC communities. This is something that happens to us, something that we experience. And in order to combat it, we can't do it by ourselves. We need to get our allies on board. And that means getting our allies a little bit uncomfortable. That means having conversations about disparities in hiring. That means having conversations about the, gatekeeping in hockey, whether it's financial or racial or location wise, that means having conversations and educating our, you know, hockey players and parents and Sorry about that. That's my dog. And pets, too. <laughs> and pets. Educating, educating those involved in hockey yeah. on how to be, you know, better allies to the BIPOC community, how to be better allies to their black players and their black fans. And those conversations can get uncomfortable because whenever we have those conversations, we're not censoring white voices anymore. We're censoring BIPOC voices. We're censoring black women. We're centering communities that perhaps have not had necessarily, they could have had a seat at the table, but perhaps they didn't have a, a voice to stand and speak up. And so that's what that's what this is all about. This is about giving a voice to those who perhaps haven't had a place to speak up about not just their experiences, but about our needs and our fears and, you know, the way that we interact with the world. 
So that that's what the Get Uncomfortable campaign is all about. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot there, and and I you know I want to you you talked about disparities in and I think you know I think hiring is at at the heart of it, right? And, yeah. And it's been interesting to watch because a lot of attention is and rightfully so has been given to Seattle, and they're doing an incredible job. And but now I worry that everyone's just going to point to Seattle and say, "Hey, look, it's working." And, and not look at other franchises that have made, maybe made regime changes in the last year or two and, and isn't following that path. So when you, you know, you, you've been pretty vocal. And one of the things you, you say, if you want to, if you want to get in the black community, hire black people, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's, how have you, how would you assess that progress? And I know it's slow, but how, you know, in light of everything going on. It's slow. Like you said, Craig, it's slow. It could be better. Um, I think that it's being addressed, that it's being thought about, uh, but yeah. it, we need more than thoughts and prayers at this moment. You know, we need action. <laughs> We've got to see some, some tangible changes taking place, specifically when, you know, when we talk about hiring. And I think that there are ways that it can be done incrementally. Um, you know, we start with the volunteers and the interns and work our way up, right? Uh, that's if that's the way that it has to be, then so be it. Um, but we cannot expect the black community to embrace the sport of hockey whenever we are not seeing anyone that looks like us, not just on the ice, but behind the bench and in the stands and in the executive offices. So that's that's why it's my mantra to hire hire black women, hire people of color, hire um, out of the BIPOC community, hire LGBTQ folks. If that those are the communities that hockey wishes to engage in, then that's one tangible way that it can be shown. Um, you know, as an English teacher, uh, one of my favorite things to say to my students is to show don't tell, right? That's, That's right. what we tell That's writers. The of writing. That's, That's the right. mantra. And so I, I'm bringing that, that mentality to hockey. If, if we want to engage in those communities, I need to be shown, not told. Yeah. I was in 2019, I want to say maybe it was the fall of 19, and you can correct me on this, but you, you took part in a private conference call with all the teams. And I think it was, you know, to... To get at the idea of authentic engagement, um, can, what was that conversation like and what kind of feedback did you get? As you... Yes, so I did have a conversation with 32 of the NHL teams back in November 2019, so about a year ago. Yeah. And yeah. the conversation was centered around um, an authentic take on Black History Month specifically. Um, Black History okay. Month. And so I came in, like I said, an uh, English teacher with a handout, a, a visual <laughs> aid uh, for right. the teams to look at, uh, at which you can find that on our website. It's called Authentic Engagement, Black History Month in the NHL. And um, there was six points that I talked about in that conference call. And of course I led out with um, hiring women of color and LGBTQ right. folks um, as a way to gain authenticity. Uh, because you know, the, I, I understand that clubs want to engage with black fans and their players and you know their team members, but also it needs to be mutually beneficial and it needs to be authentic. And so these were some of the ways that we talked about because you know black women and black folks in general are going to be not only a attentive audience, but that's that's a lucrative audience too. I have money to spend and I want to spend it. I want to buy stuff. I want to pay for my tickets. I want to enjoy the game. But the barriers are are access, access points. How yeah. do we get access to the sport of hockey when it's not promoted in our community? So that was our second point, to promote multiple communities, um, to use, you know, local radio stations, give away tickets in, you know, um, 
black community based programs, maybe on the Spanish language station, stuff like that. Um, so expanding the, the purview of, of the hockey audience. And then, of course, um, I talked about engaging all year round instead of just in Black History Month. These are things that can be done all year round and they should be done all year round. Um, talking, I, you know, I talked about highlighting black players, listening to fans uh, of color and players of color in order to understand, you know, our needs and our fears. Uh, and then, of course, um, avoiding performative inclusiveness. So um, doing things like uh, scheduling a hype night, a hockeyist for everyone night, and then not promoting it with anyone, um, you know, stuff like that. It just Fans recognize, they see that um, lackluster uh, involvement and they, they make note of it. And it's, it's got to a point where, you know, Black Girl Hockey Club, that's the entire purpose of our Get Uncomfortable campaign. It's time to speak up. It's time to make tangible change. Uh, and these are some of the ways that we can do that. Mm. You kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, I would be curious with the flip side so we could identify it clearly. Like what to you, what to you does inauthentic engagement look like? You know what I mean? Like where you can kind of feel that it doesn't seem real, but like what, what does that look like? For me, it looks like only engaging with the black community in the month of February. It's the shortest yeah. month of the year. We only get 28 <laughs> days, right? So, so, you know, come February 1st, everybody wants to have a black hockey fan on their video feed. Everybody wants to, right. you know, talk to Black Girl Hockey Club or bring Willie O'Ree out to drop the puck. And then come March, we don't see, a, you know, there's nary a black face until uh, the next year. And that's, yeah. that's unacceptable. That's performative inclusiveness. That's, that's just um, for looks. And so that's what inauthenticity is. That's wondering why there are no um, black fans in the stands when there's no promotion within the black community. There's no outreach uh, to the black community. Or when there is, it's just drop in, give away some free stuff to the kiddos, and then pop right out again. And that's not developing lifelong fans. Right. That's that's what we want to do is develop lifelong fans, um, people who are, are start off the game uh, with interest in the game when they're kids and, and share that with their families and, and grow in the game. And if the authenticity isn't there, um, those types of relationships that the, the relationship that the black community has with hockey is going to dissipate it's going to kind of it's going to disappear and um that's, right. that's we don't want that to happen hockey is an amazing game and and we want everybody to be involved hockey is for everyone right 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 it's interesting because i mean the league is you know is, is certainly under a microscope of what they're doing at the at the highest level and in you know, I th I think there's been progress made, but I think that when, an interesting thing to look at is is what the in, the different pace each individual team is taking, and uh, on this front, and and I would you know, I, and I'm sure you've looked at it, and I'm sure you've had these discussions, and I'm curious as to why you think some teams are you know more progressive, I would say, on, on, on some of this, and other teams aren't. Is it simply is like the owners embracing it or or their communities or fear of backlash? Like wh why do you think there's a range there amongst the the, the, the teams? I think it's all the things that you just said. Uh, fear of backlash, I think, is a real big one. Um, mm -hmm. From what I've gathered, just talking um, off the record with various teams, is that a, a lot of the teams don't want to make a wrong move. And so instead of making a wrong move, they make no moves. And so that you know, they would, they're remaining stagnant because they're afraid to say the wrong thing and offend a group of people who, uh, such as, you know, black folks or LGBTQ um, or any, any of the, the minority groups in hockey. And so they're remaining stagnant and not making those moves. And so I think it takes a fearlessness 
within the front office, honestly, to to take the leap and to realize that yes, you may lose some fans that are not um, here to to think about social issues that are not here to hear about social issues or to um, engage in what the players or minority fans might be experiencing um, within or outside of the rink but that's okay because there are a plethora of BIPOC fans that will take the place of those fans that leave because they don't want to you know, see um, Tyler Sagan take a knee on, right. uh, on the ice in hockey. They'll get over it or they'll move on and their space will be taken up by um, more socially conscious, open-minded, um, money-spending fans. Yeah. I, I, I don't, like, I understand that, that, that fear of losing that customer. I'm not sure I'm convinced that customer's leaving. Sometimes those customers just want to yell about leaving and then they don't actually <laughs> go anywhere, you know, and that's, right. that's totally true. I also think that there are clubs, you know, specific hockey clubs out there, professional hockey clubs that have more BIPOC folks working in their offices. And I do think that those types of um, conversations are more enriching. They're, you know, showing they have more... Um, different points of views, more experiences are being brought to the table because there are so many different types of people working in those right. clubs. You mentioned Seattle and, uh, you know, we don't know what that's going to look like after they, they um, start playing and, and how that's going to pan out. But the fact that they have so many different voices um, represented in various departments in their front office and you know behind the bench. I, I do think that that's going to bring an enriching um, enriching conversations to to the club, and they will be able to um, get a peek into communities that perhaps other clubs will not. And you know, I I don't want to like be a big hockey nerd, but everybody knows I'm a Penguins fan already, so I'm just going right. to throw it out there. Uh, I, I, I've i really been impressed with what the Pittsburgh Penguins have done in the last year. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of us um, behind the scenes, we talk about, you know, the chicken or the egg. Are they um, doing this uh, are they, you know, more involved in the black community because they have black women working in their front offices, or do they have black women working in their front offices because they're they've become more involved in the community? And you know, they've got Delvina Morrow and Tracy McCants Lewis who hosted us when we were in Pittsburgh back. Um, 25 years ago in January of 2020. <laughs> it feels so long ago, oh but gosh. earlier this year uh, when we were in Pittsburgh, you know, they had a whole Black Hockey History Day. And, you know, we talked about doing something annually so that we could come back and, and have the same types of experiences. And having, you know, black women who are committed to their community, committed to their culture, and also committed to their club, it's a whole nother right. experience for, you know, for fans of color who come in. I mean, I have this, uh, this wonderful memory of going to uh, Pittsburgh and going to this hockey game and coming with, we came with about 50 people in our group, but the Penguins ended up, you know, they put on their website on um, for January 31st of 2020 as Black Hockey History Day, and they sold tickets through that link. And they sold about 400 tickets just without, you know, in, intense advertising, just people of color in the community stumbling upon this page saying, oh my gosh, I didn't know they were doing that. This sounds interesting. Here's an entry point for me to experience something that I wanted to experience in my community, but I didn't know how. I met women at that game who were local and she, she said, I, I wanted, I've been wanting to come to a hockey game. I'm a Steelers fan. I'm a Pirates fan. I want to be a 
Penguins fan, but I don't know anybody who goes to hockey games. I saw that they had this on their website and, you know, bought a ticket, brought my friend, and there they are. You know, we, we got to meet them and spend time with them because of that, you know, reaching out to multiple communities because of that commitment and because of, you know, those black women in the office. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Um, so I, it's interesting because I think people want to see, you know, progress, you know, great progress. And, and you know, I was talking to somebody about the, um, you know, what we've seen in the playoffs and, the, you know, from, from Matt Dumba to, you know, Ryan Reeves and a host of players and, and the cancellation of games. And, um, and they were like, if you would have told me this five years ago that hockey was having these conversations and doing this, I, I never would have believed you. And and like, and the, and he, his argument, or he just said he's like he's like my fear is we're gonna push too hard, and it's going to there's gonna be this inevitable backlash, and and I would be curious to get your opinion of that of of like, of you know is there. Is, is there going too fast on this front or is that a fear that you think isn't uh, something that will be, would be realized? You know, when I look at what other major sports are doing uh, mm-hmm. in terms of social justice issues and, and being outspoken um, on the playing field or whatever, uh, and then I look at hockey, I, I marvel at this idea that anyone could think that hockey's moving too fast. <laughs> no, I, right, right. <laughs> I, I get that. Yeah. Because, you know, we look at what the WNBA are doing and those what those right. women did um, all through their time in the bubble, um, wearing shirts every day, uh, right. shifting conversations. So they, they focused on social issues w- with the press, um, you know, making sure that they, they speak up and speak out about the issues that matter to them. And, you know, I... I don't think that hockey's moving too fast. I don't think yeah. that it's going to, um, like you said, I don't believe that people are, you know, if people do get scared away by this conversation, then maybe those aren't the types of people that I particularly <laughs> want to be sitting next right. to when I go see a hockey game, right? That's right. Uh, so I would hope that um, whether it's the teams or the executives, the players or the fans, that we could progress together because our world and our countries are changing. The conversations are shifting and hockey needs to move along with it or else it's going to be left behind. And we don't want that. I don't want that. Yeah. All right. Let me, I got a million other follow-ups, but let me take a quick break here and we'll jump right back in. All right. So the NHL is, you know, they recently announced various committees that, that, you know, they have. And I, and one of the areas I to me I think the most important spot to get this right in my opinion and whatever that's worth is is on the youth levels because you know I've heard in, in and I'm sure you have these you know these horror stories where kids um, you know have to deal with abuse on the ice at the youngest ages and don't feel like they can speak up about it because then they get singled out as a, a problem family or child on a team. And like that to me is so concerning because if you can't speak out about it, I don't know how you get it fixed. And, and I'm just, I think getting it right at the youth levels is, is so paramount to, to all of this. Where do you see, you know, where, where would you start on that front? Yeah, definitely the youth level is such an important, I mean, it's the, the cornerstone, right? It's the foundation of, of so much uh, hockey love growing up and I think that particularly with the youth that instead of focusing on what the kids are doing we need to focus on their coaches and their Mm. parents and the boards that run these local clubs because that's where the shift needs to take place 
that's where those uncomfortable conversations need to happen. Um, you know, whether it's diversity and inclusion training for coaches and for, you know, team members and for board members and for parents at that level, it's going to be so important because ultimately the adults are making the decisions. The adults are making the rules and the kids are following suit because that's what kids do, right? They, they, they do what they're shown and what they're taught. And so if we're teaching our kids at the youth level that they can get away with saying certain things or they can get away with shunning people for, for social reasons, then that's not necessarily, I mean, yes, the kids, of course, have to take ownership of, of their actions, but yeah. that's the parents, that's the coaches, that's the refs at that level, that's the board members. And again, we're coming full circle back to this idea that the adults involved in hockey need to start having these conversations. They need to start mm -hmm. making better decisions and, and fixing the, the rules of how these kids play or else nothing's going to get changed. And let me tell you, I have heard so many incredibly sad stories yes. from parents and players over the last couple of years um, where they feel that they have no repose, that, like you said, that they have no where to go to fix this. And, and so they're taking their kids out of hockey. And, and black parents are saying, it's too much. I, I, I can't deal with it. My kids shouldn't have to deal with it. And they're taking their kids out of hockey. And that's not how we grow the game, right? That's not how we make hockey for everyone. We've got to address, if we're going to go into the youth level, and I look at the committee, um, the NHL's committee members for the youth hockey specifically. And I have a lot of hope because there's a couple names on there that I recognize, people that I've met um, in, in my travels over the last couple of years. And it gives me hope because I know that, that these folks have uh, amazing intentions. They have a great history within the game. And also, you know, being of color gives them a, a specific um, lens to, to how it feels to be isolated uh, in a sport like ice hockey. So, uh, yeah. 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 And so, uh, like, and it, it's interesting because USA Hockey, I, I want to say it was the fall. And again, I've like, time is weird. What I is time? For me to, I don't know. Like, what is time? <laughs> I don't, I exactly, like, I, I, I I think this was in the fall. You know, they had, they'd come up with a you know a zero tolerance rule, and really it was you know cracking down on racial slurs in the ice. And you know, and so from a very from, I hate this phrase, but from ten thousand feet, and where I'm looking at, it, I'm like, yeah, good for USA Hockey. You know, they're 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 doing this. And then when I dug in and talked to people in the communities, they're like, we didn't. Our coaches, our youth coaches, didn't even know this existed. Like it wasn't even communicated to us that this was, that this was a thing. And 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 I, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know who where that disconnect happens or why that happens, but, and I can't speak to how it is in with Hockey Canada in Canada, but I, I look at USA Hockey in in I in I, I it's an organization that I'm feel like I'm hard on because I, I want it to do better on this front, and and I think it's particularly at the youth levels, like what can such a powerful organization like USA Hockey, you know, what what can they do to to get better in this in this area? Well, I'm gonna start at the top and say hire black women. Okay. Yes. And that that yes. is going to help. But also this again, I'm going to go right back to this idea of getting uncomfortable because from what I understand, yeah. uh, USA Hockey doesn't seem to want to be uncomfortable at all. They they're wanting to do the same old same old and that is not working and it's, you know, their audience is shrinking, the criticism is growing and, you know, things are not changing. And so, you know, from the top all the way down needs to be a, a, a shift in, in the way that things are done. And it starts with 
you know, addressing hiring disparities, including more people of color in the front offices, people who are making these decisions, people who are having these conversations and leading out these conversations also. Um, that's incredibly important because, you know, we talk about the importance of allyship, but one of the, the main tenets of allyship is knowing when to step aside and let a person of color or a minority group take charge of the conversation and speak to their experiences so that things can, you know, get into perspective and we can have some new information um, around the table. And so I think that's that's definitely something that ha that where we have to start when it comes to these large organizations is, you know, addressing hiring disparities and getting some new perspective so that that information can trickle down at the same time we got to start you know at the on the ice level too and and get those people who are directly involved with the kids to either get some better training or you know get some new faces get some fresh perspective because the way things stand it's going to continue on the same path and if it continues down the same path it's it's not a good look, you know, it's, it's just not. And so, you know, these changes have to come with the, with the grownups. Uh, if we want the kids to, to make better choices, the grownups have to do that as well. Have you talked to Stephanie Jackson at all? I, yeah. Yeah. I know Stephanie. Yeah. She's amazing and she's so good at her job. Um, but she's, you know, she's got a, it's not easy being, uh, you know, the only black woman in the room is, Right. It's not easy. And so she's she can't do it all by herself, just like Kim Davis can't do it all by herself, just like I can't do it all by myself. We need mm -hmm. to have the rest of our offices, you know, the people around us lifting us up, supporting our decisions and making those tangible changes that I'm sure Stephanie is talking about up where she is. Right. I, I just wonder... And where the like where the pressure for and keeping it on USA hockey specifically, like where the pressure would come from, because I almost feel like too often it's like there's almost like, hey, this is just going to pass and we can keep it things at status quo. Right. Like right. there's there's a momentary blip of pressure and then it goes away. And or it's like, oh, you know, look at what we're doing. We've hired Stephanie Jackson. And you're right. Like she like and it's like like that, you know, she needs help. Um where where do you like where does that pressure need to come from honestly it's got to be financial craig yes. that's that's going to be the only solution um I, if the enrollment into usa hockey the the program yeah if that lowers if that gets low enough then perhaps mm -hmm. it will be addressed then um, looking at the various reasons why people are not enrolling their kids into the program might uh, drum up some of this culture shift that we're talking about. I think the same thing goes for um, the National Hockey League. If, if financially the, the league starts to do you know, not so great, then perhaps these issues might, might be addressed. Um, you know, the power of the fans is in our wallets and in our voices. And, you know, if, if we can't yell loud enough to be heard, then we sure can close our wallets up. Uh, it's, you know, it's happened in other leagues uh, and, and it, it's a reckoning. And I think that that's probably going to be what it takes. Uh, to, to get some substantial change, especially in, in an organization like USA Hockey that has been, you know, in the status quo for such a long time um, and doesn't look to be changing anytime soon. What impact does it have when, when you know, a, a public-facing, forward-facing figure at the top like John Van Beesbrook has a history that's uh, you know yeah unpleasant right <clears throat> for a lot and when when you talk to people they're like you know this is this is something that's decades old and people are allowed to change but i i imagine 
there's a different perspective if someone's you know thinking about getting involved in the sport i feel like that would be something they would go boy maybe i'm not welcome in this sport you know what I'm saying? And it, it's not even if you're trying to get involved it's if you've been involved because i yeah. know that fans of color uh, uh hockey fans of color look at um, that hire and feel completely shut out. Right. And it just, it's, it's a slap in the face, honestly, because it just shows, you know, there's got to be more qualified candidates that have not called their, you know, star players the N-word. There's got to be out there. But why, why, uh, why is that not being addressed? Why, why is that being ignored? Why is that being glossed over? It's a slap in the face to, to black fans uh, to see John up there uh, at the top making these decisions because, yes, people do change, but and people, you know, um, also should be held accountable for the things that they do. And uh, I would, you know, I'm a big proponent of this idea that cancel culture doesn't really exist. Cancel culture is just people getting held accountable for the things that they've done. And if I choose not Mm -hmm. to spend my money or my time engaging with um, a particular person because of the the offensive things that they've done, that's not me canceling them. That's me uh, using my my God-given choices and and shutting my my pocketbook, as my grandmother would say. to to something that I, I don't agree with. And so, you know, I just, I know that that hire really did shake up a lot of um, hockey fans of color. And it it's it's a slap in the face. It's, dis, it's discouraging because if something as simple and almost no brainer as, hey, let's not hire somebody who publicly has been, you know, um, has you know had this issue uh, addressed one of their players in such a derogatory way? Let's 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 see if we can find a better candidate. If that if that seems like almost the bare minimum, and if that can't be done, then what what can be done? You know, and it's discouraging. It it truly is. I think this is your phrase referred to hockey as a bubble of privilege, which I think is so accurate on so many levels, and and it. it and you know even down to like financial right like it's it's a hard the entry point is hard and um and through your work you were able to to give goalie equipment and goalie equipment is expensive just for those like i discouraged my kids from becoming goalies once i saw how much it was to an 11 year old talia rose how did you get connected with her and 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 you know what do what does helping people like that like get through that barrier, that first financial barrier? What what difference does that make? Well, Black Girl Hockey Club is lucky enough to be able to provide um, four different scholarships. Uh, we're trying to do this uh, a couple times a year, and um, we have a few different levels. So we sat down, we created a scholarship committee. We sat down with uh, a parent of a young hockey player, a couple educators. And um, we decided we we kind of hammered out uh, what a the needs are of youth hockey, what a the application would look like, what the requirements would look like. And as we were talking with this mom, uh, who has a young girl who plays a local uh, league, she's actually in two league. I think she's in a boys league and in her her own girls league. Um, we realized how incredible incredibly expensive hockey was. I mean, I really, you know, I say it, but I really had no idea how truly expensive hockey is um, on the youth level. And so to find out that a seasonal, the seasonal cost of hockey is about five grand. Um, That's including equipment and fees and travel and stuff like that. And then to find out that on top of that, kids are required to participate in tournaments that also cost about $3,000. And if they don't go to the tournaments, then they can't be on the travel team. So that's already $8,000 just for one year 
of playing youth hockey. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. That's that's insane to me that it's so expensive. And I can see why so many parents like you would say, how about we just don't be goalies or, you know, some, or how, about soccer? how about football, <laughs> you know, something a yeah. little cheaper. Um, how about track? All you need are shoes, yeah. you know, and <laughs> a go get them attitude. I could see why parents do that. You know, I have, while we were kind of planning out this scholarship, my daughter was in her last year of high school and she was playing water polo and she played water polo all four years. I'm in California. So that's kind of a thing we have out here. And she played water polo all four years. And, you know, I thought that was expensive because she had to go to a couple tournaments. She had to, um, she did club in the summers and she had a couple uniforms. It was not $8,000 a year. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, and so we decided that, you know, if we could help out in any way, that this would be a good way to start by giving out four different scholarships on various levels to young black women ages 9 through 18 who play with their local travel teams. And we have a seasonal cost scholarship, we have a tournament scholarship, we have an equipment scholarship, and we have a hockey camp scholarship. And so Talia Rose Tambaro, she is in Ontario, Canada. She applied for our summer scholarship and she got our very first one uh, back in August. And one of the things that she was able to do was to get goalie equipment. And we worked with um, Mikhail Lingo up in, or Kingo up in Canada who does a goalie giveaway. And Mikhail, he um, connected us with Talia Rose. We got her some goalie equipment, sent her up some Black Girl Hockey Club shirts, and I actually just mailed out the rest of her um, seasonal cost funds last week up to her mom, Michelle, in Canada with a couple Black Girl Hockey Club stickers. And I'm just so excited to be able to help subsidize some of these costs because, you know, just talking to um, Michelle, Talia Rose's mom, her excitement for the possibilities that her daughter has now just get had this little wiggle room that she has in money all the possibilities open up you know we were talking about because of coronavirus you know the the way of play is going to be different but she's thinking about private lessons and you know being able to get her daughter the new goalie equipment instead of used goalie equipment and you know being able to attend tournaments without you know having to worry about where the money is coming from I mean as a parent I know how important that is and how how wonderful those types of um, gifts feel that it because it is yeah. it, it's it's going to be a gift not just financially but also emotionally and and not only that but here she is with an access point now into hockey and her whole community can see that you know, that they're going to be lifting her up, they're going to be rooting for her, and they're going to know that there is this space out there called Black Girl Hockey Club that maybe they had never heard of before that exists for young black women who are interested in hockey. And in a, you know, in a sport that is predominantly white, in a sport that is, you know, in a bubble of privilege, it's kind of nice to know that you have people who share your culture, who share your experiences, good and bad in ice hockey, that you can, you know, fellowship with and, and talk with and communicate with and network with. Uh, because I know when I first got into the game of hockey that I didn't feel that way at all. And so even, you know, if it feels great for me, I can only imagine how awesome it is to be 12 years old and to see a bunch of black women who look like you and look like your mom and say, okay, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can keep going. What's the best way for people to help with that in terms of if they wanted to give to support those scholarships? You want to support the scholarship, you can go to the blackgirlhockeyclub.org. Uh, we have a donation page where you can, you know, donate anything from a dollar up to to designate to go to scholarships. We also have a PayPal if if you're, you know, if that's the way to do it. Uh, and if 
a person wants this to go specifically to scholarships, just put that in the notes. Um, but the way that things are going, we're trying to give out $10,000 worth of scholarships multiple times a year. So any anything helps, definitely. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, in, in researching, like how, how it all kind of came to be, you, you used a phrase, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, um, but you, you said you were interested in hockey fandom. And in, in, in maybe it was kind of your research background versus like, you know, people say, oh, I got into hockey because, you know, this sport's exciting or whatever. You seem to like the, the fandom side of you really seemed to pique your interest. Is A, is that true? Or, you know, am I reading it wrong? And, and B, like, what was it about that, that world that was so interesting to you? You're absolutely correct. I am a fan of fandom. Okay. I okay. love I love being a fan of things, uh, you know, just indulging in, in something like that. And so when I came across um, hockey, the first thing I noticed was the fandom. Uh, and of course, this, there's a story out there of me being in Pittsburgh and uh, encountering the sport of hockey really in person for the first time. Uh, this was, I was in graduate school, I was out there for an academic conference. I was probably talking about Mary Shelley or Zora Neale Hurston or something feminist on that end. And uh, we were out for dinner and I, on the way back we came across a group of Penguins fans leaving um, at the time they were playing at Malone Arena and I was curious. I was like, what is going on? I've never yeah. been in this type of environment before. Uh, growing up, I wasn't really into sports. I was, you know, more of sitting in the bleachers reading a book as opposed to paying attention to what was going on on the court. And so the idea of being involved in a sports fandom intrigued me. And it kind of sat in the back of my head for a little while until I couldn't uh, suppress this curiosity. I reached out to a, a girlfriend who I knew was a sports fan and she had mentioned being a hockey fan and a baseball fan and a wrestling fan and I asked her, okay, I'm kind of curious about this uh, thing called hockey. Can you please tell me what do I need to do to, to get into this? And so she pointed me to the Dallas Stars because that was her favorite team. And I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. And I started listening to games. And as an English teacher, a writer, whatever, I was just enamored by the language. I was listening to the Stars broadcast, and it's Daryl Ray um, and yeah. Razor. He's just so funny and he's so good to listen to you know he has his razorisms and he makes yep. up these funny little words and he's just the the radio broadcasts for the stars are my favorite they're so fun to listen to and that piqued my interest so i started reading about hockey and researching and then i started writing a story about ice hockey um just a fictional short story about ice hockey that Please don't ever go looking for it because it's, I was going to say I nope, want to find it. Don't 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 <laughs> lo don't go looking for it because I'm not that great of a fiction writer. But it was just an exercise in in studying, and so I learned about the phrases and and what they meant, and and then I started watching games. And um, I went to my first live hockey game with my husband and his brother. We went to go see the Dallas Stars lose. Uh, yeah. I saw them, I think I saw them twice in one weekend. And um, I was hooked. You know, I got to see a live game. It was amazing. It was, there was so much energy. Uh, and when I was there in Anaheim, I realized I was like the only black person <laughs> in a group of thousands <laughs> and thousands. And, yeah. you know, there there starts the journey towards Black Girl Hockey Club. I, I just wanted some some girls to hang out with, to talk hockey with, some some black girls that we could share, you know, cultural experiences as well as hockey experiences. That's great. Well, I know you've got to run. So even though I've got six million follow-ups, I do want one thing. If you can give me, I, I always love to ask for book recommendations on this podcast. And you seem like the perfect person because we both have a, we both have a writing passion. We both have a literature passion. So that let's let's end it there. Yes, let's give, do give it. Give our listeners something to read. All right, you. I literally just pulled out three books to tell you about. Okay, the oh, first one gosh. is called "The Game Is Not a Game," 
The okay. Power, Protest, and Politics of American Sports. It's by Robert Scoop Jackson. I'm actually teaching a sports media class right now, and we're using this as one of our textbooks. Uh, it's, it's such an interesting take on sports and politics. So that one is, I've got highlighted and notes and tabs, and it's just such an interesting book. Uh, another one is called The People's History of Sports in the United States by Dave Zirin. 250 okay. Years of Politics, Protest, People, and Play. And it's really um, uh, the history of sports with a political slant. So if you want to know uh, how social justice and sports intersect, David Zirin's book is going to be the place to look. Uh, I'm, I'm also reading this with my class, although don't tell them, but I haven't started it yet. So uh, we're, <laughs> I still have a couple weeks. <laughs> That's awesome. And then the last one I'm going to share is something that I'm very excited about. I'm halfway through one of my uh, peers and one of my colleagues at work uh, suggested this to me. It's called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity and a World Made for Whiteness. And it's by Austin Channing Brown. This is a really short, uh, short and sweet book. Um, but it's such an e interesting read. It's a first-person memoir about um, Austin Channing Brown's kind of growing up uh, as a black woman with a white man's name in a white mm. world. And she kind of talks about um, just entering various spaces and how to deal with how she dealt with racism, how she dealt with microaggressions. And she, you know, she even talks about being a Christian and, you know, racism within the church, within higher education. It's just, I found it so incredibly um, interesting, but also relatable. There's so many things hmm. in here that I could relate to. I was actually talking with the person who wrecked this book to me yesterday. And I was telling him that there was one part where she was detailing her day in the office, um, hours by hour and some of the things that she said I could completely relate to you know people making comments about her hair or mm -hmm. people you know making comments saying that she was she was mean or angry uh, for speaking her mind and just some of the assumptions that black women get placed on them before they even open their mouths uh, she talks a lot about that. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that. And I'll just say out uh, on your, your uh, podcast here that uh, Black Girl Hockey Club is starting a book club. And right. this is going to be our first book. So Craig, you got to join our book club. You're going to get some I'm great reps. Oh my gosh. Easiest <laughs> sell of all time. I love it. I love it. Awesome. Well, Renee, thank you so much for doing this. This was awesome. And thanks for everything you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it was great talking with you, Craig. I want to thank Renee Hess for joining the podcast, and I would encourage you to do a couple things. One, follow Renee and the Black Girl Hockey Club on Twitter, and that's at Black Girl Hockey. And also go to their website, blackgirlhockeyclub.org, to check out the Get Uncomfortable campaign and, and join the pledge. I just signed it yesterday, shared it on Twitter, um, and I would encourage you to check that out. Before we wrap up, also be on the lookout. We have the return of the Prospect series this week. I mean, with the timing being perfect. And it is one of my favorite episodes of the year. The annual mock draft with Corey Promden makes his triumphant return to the full 60. So that we will be recording that on Friday. And be on the lookout for that on the feed and on Twitter. We will be sharing it. Uh, it's I love that episode. It's, it's fun. Always good to catch up with Corey. Uh, and get ready for the draft. It's, we're about to hit some really fun time in hockey. Also, check out the comments section for each podcast on the Athletic app. And please, as always, rate and subscribe The Full 60 on Apple or wherever you are listening to podcasts. And last but not least, if you aren't a subscriber to The Athletic, subscribe now and save. If you go to theathletic.com slash full60, you get the all-access subscription for a dollar a month. What a deal. Thank you so much again to Renee for joining the podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great week.